Thank you, young adults. Well, good morning, church. If you would, go ahead and turn to uh, the book of 3 John. So not, not John chapter 3, but 3 John. And uh, some of you were here in June when I started this book of the Bible, and so uh, you're going to get to finish it today. But if you weren't here in June, don't worry. We're going to read the whole thing so that you can say that you read an entire book of the Bible in church today, uh, just in case you were wanting to brag about that to someone for some reason. So um, Third John, and uh, this book of the Bible, um, it's a letter really to two different people, and the first one is Gaius. And the second one is diatrephus. And so Gaius was my first message. And I'll be honest with you, it was the happier portion of the letter. Um, I called that message, How Churches Thrive. This one is less so. If you look on your notes, you can see I called it today, How Churches Die. Um, so that's a really uh, optimistic message and title to begin with. But um, diatrephus here that we're going to learn about, he has a lot of characteristics that I feel um, sneak into church culture easily. Um, some things that we just really need to be on the lookout for. Um, so I began my message in June by just saying that it feels like the church in America is on decline. And I don't know whether or not you feel like that, but it, it just feels like the church in America is on decline. So I, I listed some points that we are no longer, no longer a culturally Christian society. Churches statistically have less people in them since COVID. There are less salvations, less baptisms, um, and then even church openings. Um, in June, I referenced that if you go to the Southern Baptist Convention website, sbc.net, and you do just a job search, and you go, they have this map that has all these little red pins in it, um, and there's hundreds upon hundreds of jobs, including youth pastors. So um, there is a youth pastor shortage in North America right now. It's just kind of a known thing. And so if you would be praying for that as we search for um, a new youth pastor, um, we'd appreciate that. But I, I bring all that up not to disappoint you or discourage you at the start. Um, as I said in June, we have the exact same gospel message as we did before. It is just as powerful as it ever was. It can save a soul just as efficiently, effectively as it ever could. And we have the same God. God has not changed. God is the same mighty God who created all things, died to save uh, anyone who comes to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. Same God, same message. And so if the church feels like it's on decline, we can point to neither the message nor God. And so we have to start looking at ourselves. And so I asked this kind of question last time, what needs to be done for the sake of the name of Jesus to make him known? And so I'm going to read through verses 1 through 8 to just kind of get everybody on the same page. And then the message will start in verse 9. But if you would, go ahead and look at 3 John, verse 1. So verse 1 says, The elder, and that is John, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend. I'll just pause there, just note how affectionate he is toward this man um, who's just this blessed Christian. And as we try to think about these two different men, Gaius and Diatrephus, these two different categories, what I want you to do today is to think about yourself and one day when we all stand before God and you can look in the book of Daniel or you can look in the book of Revelation and how it'll say something like the book was open, meaning the Lamb's book of life, but then it'll say the books were open. And so I believe, my theory is that these are a record of everything we've ever done. Because it's always interesting to me when I look at a book of the Bible and you see a man's name written there. Gaius is written here forever immortalized in Scripture, but so is Diatrephus. There are two men who are written about in Scripture. Now, there's lots of people in Scripture. But here in 3 John, there are two people who are written about in Scripture, and they have entirely different accounts. 
Now imagine if we went to Diatrephus and we said, what would you like your account to read? He would rather read like Gaius, and he probably thought, my life is like Gaius. I'm the one who's in the right. Most people don't do wrong because they know it's wrong. They do wrong thinking they're doing right. And so it's important to know what is right. And so we see in 3 John, if you look again at verse 1, it says, The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health, just as your whole life is going well. For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in truth. And so in June when I preached on this, that was the first point is that God calls us to walk in truth, not just to know truth, but actually be obedient to the truth. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 5, look at it with me, please. It says, Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. Now, I want to point out two words. In verse 3, in the middle of the sentence, it says testified, or maybe yours says witness. It's usually the same root of the same Greek word. Verse 6, again, it says they have testified. So some people are talking about this man, guys, and they're saying two things. They're saying that he walks in truth, and also, look what this verse says, verse 6, they have testified to your love before the church. So what we have here in guys so far is a guy who is walking in truth and walking in love. Now, if we were just to think, how could we promote a resurgence of the church? If it feels like the church is in decline, how can we just begin building? What can we do to, to just really be a catalyst for the gospel of Jesus Christ, two things is to walk in truth, to know it, but also to do it, and to walk in love. And, and let those two concepts be married, because sometimes we, we abandon one for the other. We say, I'm going to be truthful, but I'm going to do it in a hateful way. Or I'm going to be loving, but I'm going to just accept anything and just reject things that are truth, God's word calls truth. And so we need a marriage between these two ideas, walking in truth and walking in love. But it goes on. Look at the middle of verse 6. He says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. Now, he says a few things there, but I want to emphasize the pattern. He talks about sending people who set out for the sake of the name, support them, and then he has this word at the end, co-workers. And the co-worker word is the one we get the word synergy from. And so there's this idea that if you know about synergy, that two things working together are greater when they're together. And so we can be in synergy with the truth. We can be in synergy with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mission of the gospel, but that means we can also be in disharmony with it. And so if we're not walking in truth, if we're not walking in love, if we're not supporting kingdom work, then we're at disharmony with the truth. And so we have these three things, the, the truth, love, support, kingdom, work. And this is the reputation of Gaius. This is what is forever eternalized in Holy Scriptures about this man. Truth, love, and support of kingdom work. Now we could just stop there and just say, just do that church. Just, do, just be those things. Just be about truth in a loving way in supporting kingdom work. And if we do that, then there will be such a resurgence of the kingdom of God here on earth that it will just blow us away. But the question is what happens to take a church's mind off of that? If you were to just take an assessment of churches, if we could just have somehow almost the God perspective, the real view of churches in America, we would know that there are a lot of churches that are dying today. That, that 
they, maybe they will last a few more years or something, but they're in a death spiral. There's some things have happened, and some people have some habits in those churches that have made it to where they're not going to be alive, let alone thriving. And so the question is, what happens? And I had this question. I said, what can go wrong in a church to mess up this focus of truth, love, and kingdom work? Now, um, at the beginning of the year, we got a new, a new dog, and I should actually start the story. In December, my wife and daughter began conspiring against me to get us a new dog. I was actually at, a, was at my wife's parents' house for Christmas, and we were all just kind of sitting there talking. And my wife, she doesn't usually do this, so it was odd to me. She was kind of ignoring everyone, and she was on her phone. I was like, that's unusual. She usually is talking with us. And so I'm like, what are you doing? And I could tell by her face she didn't really want me to know. And she's like, I'm shopping for a dog. <laughs> Why? Why are you doing it? We had kind of talked about it, but I thought when, when dads talk about things, it's like, oh, yeah, maybe that'd be a good idea. And in my mind, I mean, like, out there in the ether, sometime never to be achieved. But, but when I say that, apparently it actually means, no, we should start shopping for dogs. And so by January, we have a new dog. And... Um, and so, as you all know, if you've ever had a puppy, when you uh, first get them, they have to be potty trained things, so you're taking them out like every half hour to make sure they don't ruin your carpet. And so, there's a Saturday morning, and it was one of the snowy mornings, if you remember at the beginning of the year, where there's just a ton of snow, it was really cold, and my wife and I were still asleep, and the dog apparently got up early, and... Um, first hour I said I said who it was I'm gonna try not to so if you all know this Skip Leiniger our associate pastor he ruined this for me um, he told my kids that when he used to preach he would say to or he would pay his kids every time he, he mentioned them by name and so he told my kids that and so now my kids have an expectation so uh, I'm not going to tell you who it was um, their name rhymes with sniper but um <laughs> Anyway, so this one kid who rhymes with sniper, um, here's the dog, and it's apparently barking and stuff. My wife and I didn't hear the dog. And so we're sitting there. It's one of those cold days that makes you happy you have a house. Like, it's cold, it's snowy, and yet we're inside, we're warm, happy about it, asleep, thinking everything's good, everything, the house is locked up, we're all safe, life is good. Well, um, this one child, who won't be named, uh, apparently here's the dog, takes the dog outside, to use the restroom, and the door shuts behind her and freezes shut. So we didn't know it. She's banging on the door. We can't hear it. We're upstairs asleep, banging on the door, pulling on it, like just can't get in. And so apparently what, um, I keep almost saying the gender, but what this individual did, <laughs> what they did is they went and um, they went to the gate, even the gate was snowed in, so they couldn't move the gate either. So they had to jump over the gate, like scale the gate in the middle of freezing weather and go to the front. We had also just gotten a new garage door opener. Ours had died, and so ours is a weird one that doesn't have an enter sign when you're done. You actually have to hit the zero. I had never trained her on that, so she didn't know that either. So she goes to the front, and she's trying to get into our garage. I said she. I never said her name. I owe her nothing. Um, <laughs> So now I've said it. So she, she apparently punches in the code and hits the, hits the zero button. I was impressed with that. And so she comes up stairs and wakes us up, quite panicked, obviously. And so we're like, what just happened? You know how you get woken up for uh, a, an alarming thing like that. And so we're, we're obviously 
just concerned. We thought everything was safe. And um, I did say to her, I was like, I'm super proud of you that you didn't panic. And she's like, oh, I panicked for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and so, but proud of her, she uh, scaled the wall, punched in the coach. And, uh, anyway, it worked out all right. But the point is this, that sometimes, sometimes we think we're safe and we don't realize we're vulnerable to danger. I want you to think about that as a, a church setting. Sometimes we sit there, we think that, well, I came to church, I sang, I studied the Word, um, life's good, everything's good, and we don't realize that we're in danger. There are churches potentially meeting this morning that may not be around next year because their church is dying, and they may not even know it because they just think, I've, I've done the thing, I've come to church, um, I've sang, sang some songs, uh, said hi to people, life is good. And so we're going to identify in the life of Diotrephus in 3 John verses 9 and on, some principles that are really negative principles, some things that we need to watch out for every bit as much as we need to pursue walking in truth, walking in love, and supporting kingdom work. We need to identify these things, and what I want you to not do is gloss over them as if that's someone else. Scripture is going to just flat step on our toes today, mine too, and what I don't want you to do is recoil and say that's someone else or get mad. What I want you to do is examine yourself, and I want us to think of our two different resumes that are presented here, Gaius and Diotrephus. There are two people forever immortalized in Scripture as we will be when we stand before God and our book is open, and it reads an account before us, and we know that we're guilty before a holy God. So, Look at, uh, if you would, 3 John, verse 9. 3 John, verse 9 says this. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. So I want you to be thinking of this question as we go all throughout these verses is, where was Diotrephus vulnerable? Where are we? So I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have first place. So that first phrase, I wrote something to the church. Obviously, there's a first and second John before third John. Uh, commentators actually don't think it's either of those letters just because of um, the, the topics mentioned. They think there, there may be a lost letter somewhere. Um, but he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have first place. Now, I want to just talk about this thought of first place. Sometimes we think that it just means attention, glory, things like that, but the, the phrase broken down just means you love first, meaning you love yourself first, right? So it doesn't have to be attention, glory. It doesn't have to be any of those things. Uh, one of the areas that I've seen a real vulnerability with this is young preachers, and I'm, we have our young adults over there, some who want to be pastors. I'm not talking about them, but as I've even gone through seminary and hopefully grown myself, I've seen this tendency with young seminarians, young preachers, that as they start to get a little knowledge, they become a little dangerous, because now, now they know something, and now they're going to teach the world how church should be done, and, and, and we're going to fix all these things, and I'm telling you, when people get this mindset, they would almost destroy a church to rescue a church. You hear that? They, they would say, I'm going to do it the right way. I'm going to have church the right way. We'll, we'll fix this thing. And they would almost destroy a church to rescue a church. Now, of course, the problem is that's not, that's not only young men in seminary, is it? Right? There's a lot of times when we Christians, we feel like, I know how church should be done. I know a certain thing about church. We should do it this way or that way. And we get upset, and we would almost destroy a church to rescue a church. So I want to ask you a few questions. These are introspective questions. I just want you to think about them. I want you to consider in your heart if any of them are true. 
So is it more important for you to be known as right or God's church to have peace? Is it more important for you to be known as right or God's church to have peace? So imagine a scenario where um, there's a disagreement in church or a decision to be made and you're wholeheartedly against something and it goes the other way and all of a sudden it becomes clear that you were right. Is it more important for you to be known as right or for God's church to have peace? I'm not asking what's empirically more important or objectively more important. I'm saying to your heart, what is more important? What gives you the greater burden in your soul for you to be known as right or for God's church to have peace? Because I'm telling you which one it should be. It should be peace. Diatrephus loves to have first place. What about this question? Is it more important for you to have your preferences met or God's church to be on mission reaching and equipping people? Is it more important for you to have your preferences met or God's church to be on mission reaching and equipping people? I'm telling you all around the country there are churches that are dying because they've become obsessed with preference. That there are things that I want church to look a certain way and to be a certain way. And some of that nostalgia is an okay thing because it links us and binds us to a church. But where it goes wrong is when I say, I want my preference to the extent that I'm not going to do anything to reach the next generation. Now, I, love, I, I do love both of our service. I'm glad this church has invested in a modern service. I look at the young adults who I get to faithfully minister to, and it's no... It's no coincidence or shock that a lot of them come to this service. This is a church that has invested in that. But what I often say to the young adults is one day you won't be the young adults. This will be the church that how you knew how to do church. And so you'll sing and worship a certain way. And it'll get to a point that this is how we do church. And I can't think about doing church a different way. And we get stuck in this mold of preference as opposed to the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is about reaching people? Is it more important for you to have your preferences met or God's church to be on mission reaching and equipping people? Is it more important for you to get an apology or for you to forgive? Now again, I'm not asking which is objectively more important. I'm saying for you in your heart. You're in a, a room filled with people, a church filled with people, you are going to have problems. You're going to bump into people, have differences of opinion. Someone's not going to be as polite to you as you deserve, and vice versa. Is it more important for you to get an apology or for you to forgive? Internally, as you weigh, which burdens my soul more? Is it the one that puts me first, or is it the one that puts others first? Is it more important for me to have that person come to me and make peace, or am I just going to go be a peacemaker because it doesn't matter what they do to me because my identity is in Christ. I stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and so I'm okay, and so I can be a peacemaker even if they didn't do their part. Is it more important for you to get an apology or to forgive? Is it more important for you to get credit or attention when you serve or give or for God to get the glory? Is it more important for you to get credit or attention when you serve or give or for God to get the glory? 
You hear all these topics that I want to be right. I want my preferences met. I want an apology. I want credit. I want attention. This is what Diotrephus was doing. Look again at 3 John verse 9. It says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have first place. This is what I'm asking you today to evaluate in yourself. I'm not trying to accuse you, convict you, anything like that. Your own heart does that. My own heart does that. Because sometimes these are true of all of us. And what I'm saying is these sins can sneak into a church and they can fester and they can build and they can cause churches to die because we start to want to be right, have our preferences met, we demand apologies, we won't make peace, and we want attention and credit and so on. We could make more of a list. And if this is our heart as opposed to the other side of the list, then we're wanting first place. Do you love first place? Now here's the problem, of course. On your sheet or on the uh, board, they'll have Scripture. Matthew 20, verse 16 says this. The last will be first, and the first last. Luke chapter 9, verse 26 through 28 says this. After an argument started among the disciples about who was the greatest of them, Jesus concludes, whoever is least among you, this one is great. John 3, 30. John the Baptist says of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. So Diotrephus loves to have first place. Sometimes we love to have first place. And we may not say that like, oh, I need to be first. But our actions or our words show that we love to have first place. The problem is this. God is first. That's what all these verses just said. Matthew 20, Luke 9, John 3, Philippians 2, and so on. God is first. And Scripture asks us to, asks us to take another step, not just putting God first, but putting others first. So not only am I supposed to put God and His message first, I'm to start thinking about other people before I think about me. And that would eliminate my desire to be right, have preferences apologies, credit, and attentions because my goal is to put God first. And then my obedience is to put others first. And so the first point is this. Churches die if we make ourselves first. Churches die if we make ourselves first. But it goes on. I'm going to read verse 9 all again. It says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. Now, there's certainly a connection between these two thoughts, that he wants to be first place, and he doesn't receive their authority. And so, maybe this authority he's talking to is the fact that he wrote another letter, and, and maybe, maybe that's why we don't know what letter it is. Maybe Diotrephus did something. Or, if you would, look up at verse 5 with me. It says, Dear friend, you are acting faithfully. So again, this is to guys. You are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So what it could be is that there's almost like traveling preachers who are representatives of John going to these different places. And maybe it's them that Diotrephus won't receive. We don't really know, but we know that he loves to fir have first place and he does not receive authority. There was, a, there was a time when I was in high school, I worked for uh, Pizza Hut, and I, was, I became a shift manager. It's still, no offense to the high schoolers here, it still blows my mind that they let me be a, a shift manager as a high schooler. I'm sure you all are way more responsible than I was, but um, 
but so then I had a, a sports injury, and it took me out for like 10 months. So I was getting ready to go back after I healed. And I was going back to um, Pizza Hut, but my store manager had moved to KFC. And so my store manager actually offered me a job, said, hey, you can come, come be a, a shift manager over here at KFC, and I'll pay you a dollar more an hour. How can I say no to that? Go work at KFC, make a dollar more. And so I went over there. But what I found was people didn't immediately accept my authority. In fact, I didn't even know how to make chicken. <laughs> I didn't know how to cook chicken. And yet I'm supposed to be the one in authority here. Now, there is a culture now, our society now, and some of it earned, does not respect authority. You could see it in churches. Uh, people are regular, just easy question pastors, uh, second guess, talk behind back, things like that. But it's pervasive all over. I mean, if, if you just look at society, if you, if you turn on the news today, or if you go search whatever media source you use on your, your phone, you could find a scandal of a leader, could you not? You could find some leader who abused power, did something bad. The problem is, Biblical authority is still godly. It, biblical authority is a godly thing. It is a scripture-derived thing. Look at uh, your notes there. I have Hebrews 13, 17. And it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, of course, you could say, well, what if they do something um, evil or sinful? Yeah, there, there are times when we should remove leaders. Um, I even think of uh, the most recent Southern Baptist Convention, um, use scandal for lack of a better word, but what I, what I actually liked about this situation is I feel like in many ways the system works because it was the churches that demanded the Southern Baptist Convention leaders investigate. It wasn't some outside party saying the Southern Baptist Convention has um, this wrong and you all should investigate. It was the churches who came up and said, we demand an investigation. So all the churches that are churches like this that had nothing to do with it, they have the power to say, we demand an investigation. And that was authority being held accountable. So I'm all for holding authority accountable, but still obey your leaders and submit to them since they watch over your souls. We ought not to just dismiss biblical authority. And I don't say this for me as a pastor because I'm not the head pastor, but, but we ought to respect our pastor. One of the joys of working for Pastor Doug is he is just a godly man. The, the man you see on Sunday is the man we see throughout the week. He, he cares about the gospel. He cares about the people of this church. It's a joy to be able to work for him. And this is how we ought to view him until something ever happened that someone loses our, our uh, biblical reason for respecting them, supporting them. We ought to have this approach to biblical leadership. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There's the, there's the check to all leaders who would abuse power, is that they'll give an account to God one day. Now look at the next part of Hebrews 13. It says, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief. I wonder as you think about your approach to uh, dealing with your pastor or biblical leaders, spiritual leaders, spiritual authority, I wonder if you ever measure do I do this so that they can do their job with joy and not with grief? I want you to think about this. As we're trying to think of why churches die, and I'll just tell you this, pastor, the job of pastor is one of the quickest burning, burnout jobs that there is. I, I love being a pastor, but I'm telling you, pastor is one of the quickest burnout jobs. And I wonder if churches and church members think about, do I make sure that my pastor can do his job with joy and not 
with grief. Now look why. For that would be unprofitable for you. Because we're diminishing the ability of the one who is the shepherd of our soul. We're diminishing the ability of them to do their job when we make them do their job with grief. And so the next point is this. Churches die if we don't receive biblical leaders. Churches die if we don't receive biblical leaders. Scriptural authority is a godly thing. Reasonable trust. I'll I'll say it that way. Reasonable trust is a godly thing. Assuming the best is a godly thing. Absolutely remove unbiblical leaders. But I want to put this challenge before you. Ensure that your critique is actually biblical. It is not uncommon for people to critique and it's not biblical. Now I'm going to touch on uh, a way to critique in a second. But churches die if we don't receive biblical leaders. Let's look at the next verse, verse 10. This is why if I come... I will remind him of the work he is doing. Now, if you just took that, this is a good uh, half sentence of, like, you can take things out of context really easy. If I just said, I'm going to come remind you of the work you're doing, that sounds like an encouraging thing. But he's talking to Diotrephus, who had just said, loves to have first place and does not receive his authority. And so this is why when I come, I'm going to remind him of the work he's doing. That won't be a good conversation. But look what he says. He says, slandering us with malicious words slandering us with malicious words. That word slander can mean a babbler or someone who talks nonsense. So in other words, it's not true. The things he's saying aren't true, and also they're malicious, they're evil, they're wicked, and even painful. So I want you to know this or think about this. Do you know that there is a proper way to handle a grievance in a church? And in fact, some of it's refreshing. Now, we'll be honest, no one likes to just put out fires all the time. But there is a refreshing way to bring up a problem or a concern. And you are going to have problems and concerns. As I said, we're in a a body of believers. There are people, we're all sinners, we're all fallen. And so you're going to have problems. You're going to have things to bring up. But there's a biblical and even a refreshing way to do that. I've actually had um, several emails recently, not not at me, but, um, but things that people had a concern. Every single one of them handled it godly, and it was refreshing to me. I tried to respond back. I appreciate the tone that you brought this up on. Because then we can talk about it. Then we can have a conversation. There is a biblical way to do that, and that is privately, person to person, and respectfully. That's how you bring up concerns to a biblical authority. Privately and person to person. Now, of course, if there's something, uh, again, we'll, we'll just put this caveat out there. If there's something criminal or sinful, something like that, of course you handle that differently. I'm talking just about concerns. I'm talking about things that, that we often fight more about, the things that it's like diatrephus trying to have first place. And so I've had some recently that they came respectful, loved the conversation, and I love that kind of interaction. But that means there's an unbiblical way to do it. And we know that, right? Go on someone's Facebook account who has a grievance with a church and find the unbiblical way to do it. If the biblical way to do it is privately and respectfully, the unbiblical way is publicly and disrespectfully. Uh, This is the verse I think of. I'm going to have you uh, look on your notes or uh, on the screen. This is the verse I think of every time someone trashes a Christian or a church on their social media. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1 says this, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Instead, brother goes to court against brother and that before unbelievers. Church, I want you to hear this. 
it is, a, it is a fine thing, a good thing for you to have concern for your church. It is a, a refreshing thing for you to bring up your concerns in a biblical, respectful, one-on-one manner. It is a sin. It is a violation of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If I have a grievance and I air it out to the world, even if you were right, you could be right about what you're upset about, but the moment you take it to public and you act disrespectfully and trash a church or a Christian, the moment we do that, we're in the wrong. Everything else I could have been right, the moment I do that, I'm in the wrong. It's a violation of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 6. It is what Diotrephus was doing. Look again at verse 10 of 3 John. He says, this is why if I come, I will remind him of the work he is doing. He's slandering us with malicious words. Church, I'm telling you this for point number three. Churches die if we attack the church with our words. This is a common thing. And my goal again in this is not to say you should just feel terrible if you've ever done that in the past. You should feel some godly guilt, but just don't do it again. Build people up. Use your words. Use your social media platform. Use your public influence to build people up, to pour praise, to pour praise to God, to point people to God. Don't use your public image to tear people down. If you have a concern, talk to that person. Talk to them not about them. Churches die if we attack the church with our words. Look at the rest of this in verse 10, middle of verse 10. It says, and he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. So he's not happy with what he's done so far. Diatrephus. Think about what he's done. Verse 9, he loves to have first place. Verse 9, he doesn't receive biblical authority. Verse 10, he slanders people with malicious words, but he's not satisfied with just that. He refuses to welcome fellow believers. And he doesn't just stop there. He even stops those who want to welcome other people, and he expels them from the church. Now you may say, well, okay, that's the extreme. This is where me and Diotrephus have a parting of ways. I kind of like the having first place part. I kind of like the question of authority. Um, I'm all right gossiping and talking about people, but all right, I'm going to welcome people. I'm not going to kick someone out. I want us to think about this. Imagine you're a new person who comes to a church, and you walk in those doors, and you hear some people who, for all they know, is you're the, you're the pillars of this church, right? They don't know any better. They're brand new. And they hear you all gossiping about someone. What'd you just do? We mark this as the type of church that gossips. You, you were the representative for First Baptist Church of O'Fallon if that's the conversation they heard from you. You made a person, or I made a person, unwelcome. Make them feel like this is the type of church I shouldn't be at. And I've stopped someone from wanting to be here. In fact, I may have driven them away. And, and that's just one sin. That's just one gossip. We can imagine how this could multiply again and again and again. What type of person does this sound like? This is someone who takes their ball and goes home, to use playground analogy, when they don't get their way. This is someone who meddles to get their way, who has quiet conversations about people. Instead of addressing concerns to people, they go behind the back instead of face to face. This is someone who works to have church their way instead of creating an environment that welcomes new people, respects biblical authority, and puts God and his mission first. The fourth point is this. Churches die if we destroy unity and hospitality. You see the, the contrast here. We have a man, Gaius, 
who walks in truth, love, and supports kingdom work. And we have those little sins that they're enunciated because they're on the pages of Scripture, but people who love to have first place, doesn't receive biblical authority, slanders, gossips a little bit about people, therefore it's not welcoming, may stop others, may expel people, or drive people away from the church. Like, it sounds enunciated because it's in Scripture, but, but we could see that in ourselves sometimes. I'm telling you, churches don't die of a mysterious disease. They die of Christians being okay with sin in their life. I'm not saying if you've ever done these things, you should get out because I'm a sinner too. And in fact, I would say we all lean a little on the diatrephus side at times. We all lean away from Gaius at times. We're all a little bit on the diatrephus side at times. What I'm saying is when we know these things about ourselves, the word of God is here to chasten us, to hold our tongue, to say some of the words I say, I ought not say. Some of the things I think ought not come out of my mouth. Some of the things I want to do, I have to stop. Some of the grudges I harbor in my heart, I ought to let go and forgive because Christ forgive me. Churches die if we make ourselves first, don't receive biblical leaders, attack churches with our words, destroy unity and hospitality. Now I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. I'm going to come back to 11. I'm reading 12 through 15 just so you all can have that bragging right that you read through an entire book of the Bible at church today. But then I want to finish with verse 11. So look at verse 12 with me if you would. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself. And we also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. Now, I kind of want to finish this also because I know there may be someone in this room who's never read a book of the Bible before in their life. And I'm telling you, now you know what Third John is about. It's a little obscure book, maybe not the most referenced book of the Bible, but you know what it's about now. And what I charge you in, this is a side sermon, what I charge you in is make that your life. Gradually, slowly, learn the Word of God. Let's go back to verse 11. Dear friend, so now he's talking to Gaius again. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. We have two resumes before us. We have Gaius, and we have Diotrephus. We've both been a little, we've all been a little on both sides before. We've all been like Gaius sometimes. We've all been like Diotrephus sometimes. The, the way Gaius lived and how he's recorded is how churches thrive. The way Diotrephus lived is how they die. God may convict you of something today that there's something that you repeatedly do that needs to get out of your life so that we can make the name of Jesus known, so that we can set out for the sake of the name and not be a hindrance, so we can be in synergy with the truth, co-workers, supporters, senders of the truth. So we have Gaius and we have Diotrephus. We have these two things, and he says in verse 11, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Now here's why. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Now that word seen means to like stare at and discern. So here's the thing. Sometimes we get very passionate about something to do with church, right? I bet Diotrephus was passionate. It sounds like he was a pretty, uh, he had strong leadership characteristics, even if he was doing it sinfully. He, he, was, he ruled with an iron fist. He was probably passionate about the things that he did. Sometimes we're very passionate about the things we think are of God. The things that are on the preference side, not the God side. The, the preferences 
not the biblical truth. The challenge I put before you is this, is this says the one who does good is of God, the one who does evil has not seen God, meaning I can have all this passion, but I am not discerning God. Put God first, receive biblical authority, speak to people not about them, have hospitality and unity. Let's pray. Father God, I just, I thank for your word and I pray that the church members today receive this. Or maybe we have guests, they take this back to their church. God, I pray that we would seek to bring you glory, to lift you up and not ourselves. And God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know the name of Jesus Christ, they may wonder why does this even matter. And it matters because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the most important message in all the world. So if we Christians sometimes, by the way we bump into each other and cause issues, we become a stumbling block to the gospel. We get in its way. And the gospel is this, that we are all sinners before a holy God. And sin earns death, both physical and spiritual. And spiritual death is separation from God for all eternity in a real place called hell. That's the earnings of sin. But Jesus died for us. And because he died for us, that if I confess with my mouth that he is Lord, meaning I make him master of my life, and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I can be saved. I can have eternal life. This is the message. This is the message you've given us to share to the world. And so help us not be like Diotrephus, but help us be like Gaius. Let us walk in truth. Let us walk in love. Let us be about kingdom work. And for anyone who doesn't know Jesus, I pray today would be the day where they desire to pass from death to life, that they could come talk to a deacon of the week who will be at the front, or they can come see me in the back, and I'd love to share with them how to know Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.